when I was thinking today about what I was going to talk about and recognizing that tonight was the last talk of this retreat, thinking about what pieces I wanted to bring together, I realized I wanted to uh, come to the end of the uh, riddle or the koan that I posed the first night, Colin's koan about uh, when I'm not, uh, how can I know when I'm not paying attention? So that's where I started. And then I thought I would say as well that on the last day of a retreat, people often ask, um, how can I take this practice out into the real world? So I wanted to have a chance to say uh, again that this is the real world. This isn't any, uh, we have the same mind here that we have in the rest of the world. We live in this uh, unusual form. We live in uh, as hermits in a community, and we have this particular form of being together where we sit and we walk and we sit and we walk and we don't do any other activities except eat and take care of our bodies. And we have a different form of living the rest of our lives. But uh, I think of this practice... Uh, I, I, I remember saying this the very first night, as the practice of keeping my mind clear and my heart open. So when I say, when I talk about how my practice is doing, that's what I'm thinking about, not thinking so much about how much am I sitting. Although, of course, in the course of um, the leaving talk tomorrow, we'll talk about continuing contemplative set-aside times in the life. But... That's a contemplative set-aside time in the life. The practice, I think, is the practice of mind clear and heart open. And I thought I would talk again about um, the two questions that come up uh, uh, very much in interviews. One I spoke about the other night about, am I doing this right? And the other one is the one that people keep reporting Quite naturally, it happens It happens when the mind wobbles. It happens not because we don't know, really. The question, what am I doing here? People said, uh, various times, they said, you know, I was going along just fine. And then all of a sudden, I had the thought, what am I doing here? And what is everybody else doing here? Why am I here? What is this? How does what we are doing here connect with what's our lives in the rest of the time? How does it connect with the rest of the world? I say we go back into the real world, or this is the real world, but go back into that outside world. These are turbulent times. Sally talked the other day about we live in interesting times. I don't know if these are more turbulent than other times in history. We know about them faster and in greater intensity. I think that's pretty sure than in other times of history. You know, since uh, September 11th of last year, I'm sure it's true that I have never taught anywhere, any single class at a retreat at Spirit Rock, anywhere, in which some reference to 9-11 has not come up. I haven't always planned it, but it seems one, one breath away from everyone's consciousness. 
And um, as unhappy as I am that that happened, that that tremendous calamitous event happened, and so many people, many of you may know people who were directly affected. If anything can be thought of as the lesson that we might take from that is the dire consequences, really, of greed and hatred and delusion unaddressed. The terrible trouble that the world is in from greed, hatred, and delusion unaddressed, unrecognized. If it were a mindfulness bell, it was a huge mindfulness bell, a tremendous wake-up to the work, at, for, at least for me, of the absolutely Im, Im, the absolute imperative of the world waking up now to what it needs to do to save itself. And the other thing that I wanted to talk about is... Um, uh, again, thinking about going home and how does uh, the practice of open-minded, open-heartedness show itself when it isn't demonstrating itself by sitting on the zafu, by walking in this way, by living in a retreat center. It shows itself, I think, in sila practice, in virtue practice. When you arrived, you recited or we, James recited, and you all reflected upon, and I'm assuming took upon yourself, the precepts for impeccable behavior in community. We'll do it again tomorrow before we leave. So we really reinforce amongst us that this is where our hearts are, that we feel good when we say in the company of other people, this is what I trust is a good way to live. This is what I take upon myself, I uh, take upon myself the, the task of living in this way, not as a burden, but as a joy, out of wisdom, not out of anything else, out of wisdom, out of kindness, out of generosity, because out of, out of care of myself, it will make me happiest. Talk about the three parts of this path, of, of uh, this lineage, of the path of sila, samadhi, and panya, the path of, of wisdom, of increasingly knowing what's true, the path of cultivation of the mind so that we can see more and more clearly the path of samadhi, and the path of sila, the path of moral behavior, virtuous behavior, because it makes us happy, primarily. It makes a better world, primarily. And also because it prepares the mind for the arising of insight and wisdom. We live in a place, if we live lives that unfold in ways of um, um, righteousness, then our mind is at ease. And it is the perfect place for more wisdom and understanding to arise. So I thought I would begin and end with... um, airplane stories, to bookends of airplane stories. I was on an airplane two weeks ago um, going from uh, Newark to Indianapolis. And I had been for several weeks teaching in different places in the East Coast. 
and um, teaching one retreat after another, so it was quite intense. But I was feeling very good, as I do here, even when it's quite intense. I love to teach this, and it really wakes me up and inspires me to teach it. So I was feeling good. It was an intense schedule, as is this one. And when I left, I, I left and I needed to be that very evening at the retreat ended. I needed to be in Indianapolis, and I needed to go all the way to the Newark airport from where I was in Newburgh, New York, and then I had to take two planes to get to Indianapolis. And um, it took me so long to negotiate my tickets at the ticket counter that when I got to the security, it moves quite slowly now. And so it moved quite slowly, and by the time my bags went through, I had to give up my embroidery scissors with a very blunt end on them, because no amount of explaining these are blunt end. So very high vigilance until, until I finally get on the plane just in time, and I sat down. And the um, plane was airborne. I was a little bit, truth to tell, annoyed about them taking away my, <laughs> my scissors. They'd been a gift. They were beautiful. They were gold-plated. They come on a ribbon. They hung around my neck. Um, I got a little mad at the person who took them away. I thought to myself, do I look like a terrorist? Really? <laughs> I got on the plane, and I sat down, and uh, I opened the newspaper. I opened the New York Times, and I read an article by Nicholas Kristof on the op-ed page about the conditions for women in the Sudan. And I burst into tears. I had to hide myself behind my newspaper. New York Times is a big newspaper. You can hide behind it. But I cried. Oh, cried. I thought to myself first, but I was wrong. I thought, see, you really are tired. But I'm not sure it was tiredness. I think I was awake enough to feel the pain directly. I think, in a certain way, that's why we practice, to feel the pain directly and be transformed by it. I was, in the moment, transformed, because what went away was my anger at the poor security officer who took away my scissors. So I thought to myself, I'd been mad, do I look like a terrorist? No, I don't. But if I were part of a terrorist organization, I'm exactly the person I would choose to do a thing like that. I, and I, I would arm myself with embroidery scissors. <laughs> and I realized that I, I felt actually a little bit badly. I felt, I, I felt a little remorseful because I'd given her a bit of a hard time. Um, and she has a tremendously stressful job to look at thousands of bags every day and make a call about, uh, make a call, a judgment call that could really affect hundreds of lives. It's tremendously important, thousands of lives when you think about what happened in New York. She has a tremendously difficult job. I felt really badly about having given her a hard time. Of the, by the way, these are all pieces of hints about what happens when you pay attention, what happens when you don't pay attention. 
I don't think I was tired. I may have been tired, but I think I was awake. I was paying attention. Uh, there's a story about the Buddha where someone asked him at one point, um, are you a god? And he said, no. And the questioner said, are you a regular person? He said, no. He said, well, what are you then? And he said, I'm awake. That's a really important story. I was... um, I was at a conference in Southern California in uh, Santa Barbara a couple of years ago, and I needed to go to the Los Angeles airport, so one of those airport vans came to get me. Five o'clock in the morning, it was dark, it was misty. Back of the van was full of sleeping people, also going to Los Angeles. So I got in the front, which is where I like to ride anyway, and I recognized the driver. He had driven me there a week before, so uh, when we'd come the week before, it had been in the middle of the day, and we'd talk to each other. So I knew we had been alone in the van, and I, we'd talked, and I knew his name was Mohammed. He had come from uh, Bombay two, three years before. He had a mother and two sisters and three brothers still waiting for visas in India. He had opened a, a restaurant in Ventura with a friend of his, but the restaurant had failed. He was driving a van, but he didn't really want to drive a van. He wanted some other work, and he was just driving a van as an interim thing. So I knew a lot about him. (laughs) And he smiled at me, so I could tell that he recognized me from the week before. But it was dark, it was early, I was sleepy, everybody was sleeping in the back, so I didn't say anything, I'm just sitting, kind of dozing in the front. And we were about one hour into the two-hour ride, and he leaned over and he said, "Um, you think it'd be all right if I uh, stopped somewhere at a stop uh, somewhere at a roadside stop and got some coffee because I'm pretty sleepy. <laughs> so I said I was sure it would be all right. I said, as a matter of fact, if you'd like for me to drive until we get there, I'll drive. He said, no, no, I'm going to be all right. Meantime, at this point, I'm wide awake, so I, I turn towards him, and I figure I'm now going to engage him in conversation <laughs> to make sure he stays up. So I said, um, and I try to think of conversation, but we had used up all the conversation the week before, knew all those things about him. I said, Muhammad, you're a Muslim, yes? He said, yes. I said, do you pray? He said, yes, of course. I said, every day? He said, yes, of course. Say five times. I know this, you know, I'm just trying to keep the conversation going. Uh, He said, yes, of course. I said, what do you say? I said, tell me what you pray. So he started to say, then he said, I don't know it in English. I said, don't tell me in English. Tell me in Arabic. Tell me what you say. So he said a long thing, and then he finished. And I said, um... Do you need a lot of people to pray, or can you pray by yourself? He said, it doesn't matter, you can pray by yourself, or you can pray with a lot of people. I said, Does it, do you, is it better to pray long or to pray short, and how, how long do you pray? So he thought about it a little bit. He said, probably longer is better than shorter. He said, but then he thought about it a little bit, and he said, the truth is, he said, it doesn't matter how long you pray. He said, there are people that could stand, they could pray all day, 
and it doesn't do any good because it's not connected to their heart. So I said, Muhammad, how do you get it to be connected to your heart? And he stopped for a minute. Then he waved his arm at the passing scene outside. He said, you look around you. He said, you look around, you see how it is. He said, it's like we're all in the middle of the ocean. Nobody knows how to swim. You look around, we're all drowning. It breaks your heart. When you see that, you connect. At that point, I noticed we were driving along. I said, Mohammed, there's a Wendy's over there. You want to <laughs> drive off? And he said, no, I don't need to. I'm awake. I think that's about it. You look around, and you look with your eyes, and you see the pain in the world. You wake up. You wake up because you need to wake up. Something needs to get done. You connect to it. You can't fall back to sleep. I want to talk about what is it about this practice that we do here that connects us to the world and its pain, because in a certain way it's paradoxical. There's no television, there's no radio. can't look at the world around for all you know. Anything could have happened in the world outside this week. I think it's not paradoxical. I think what we do here equips us to be able to look around and see the pain in the world. I think it equips us in a couple of ways, two ways at least. One is I think we can live in the middle of the world and not see the pain of the world if we are blinded by our own filters. To the degree that I am bewildered by the filters of my own mind captivated, held captive by my own turmoil. Can't see past the thicket of my own grids. I won't be able to see what's out there. I think one of the things that we come to see directly here in this idyllic situation, completely comfortable, quiet, well-fed, well-cared-for, well-held, safe. The stories of our life that bewilder us, that captivate us, that come up and cause us pain, come again. And we see over and over and over again how the mind gets caught, held captive, and in a moment of compassion for ourselves, in a moment of pity, really, kindness for ourselves, mercy for ourselves, we let go, and then we're free for a little while again. We have all our bewildering needs. I need this. I need to get rid of this. If I can't get this, or if I can't get rid of this, I can't be happy. And we are so busy addressing that, we can't see past it. can't see who's out there. We can negotiate whole lives in the world sleepwalking, like we're the only person in it, and not seeing past our own story. I went, um, I went to see a um, 
Tibetan teacher one time, some years ago. There's a period of years in my own practice where my own, I don't know, as a result of, I think as a result of, but coincidental with intensive uh, meditation practice on retreat, um, I developed over a number of years uh, a tremendous amount of um, energy experiences in my body. At first quite pleasant, then more strongly pleasant, and then somewhat more problematic, and then somewhat really problematic and confusing and bewildering. And It just happens to some people. It's not a sign of um, wisdom. It's just a sign of a body that responds in a certain way to a concentration practice. Um, during the, the beginning experiences of energy, some of which are quite beautiful, I felt really good and really special. And I was really happy about it. And then as those experiences got more intense and somewhat more uncomfortable, I looked around at my friends and people I knew, whose, whose practice I knew, who seemed to have bodies that sat very quietly while their minds became quite wise and their hearts became quite open. And I actually uh, wished I had their experience. But everybody has what they have. So for some years I had that kind of experience. And I, um, I uh, wasn't so comfortable with it. And I went to talk to all of my teachers about it. Everybody gave me different advice. And, um, then I went to see Chagdad Rinpoche. Chagdad is a teacher in the Tibetan tradition, and someone told me that the Tibetans know a lot about energy, so I went to see Chagdad, and uh, it was wonderful. We, uh, we met in Berkeley. I made an appointment. He was teaching in Berkeley. I went to Berkeley, and I explained my whole complicated, energetic, I feel this and that and the other. And he listened so carefully and seemed very kind, and... At the end, he said, uh, I thought he was going to give me some prescription for something to do. He did give me a prescription. He said, um, how much compassion practice do you do every day? So I didn't know quite what he meant. And I gave a very textbook answer to compassion. It's embarrassing to think about it. I said something about uh, in, you know, when one practices mindfulness, one is hoping for... Uh, wisdom which will reflect itself in compassion. Who knows what I said? I'm embarrassed <laughs> to think about it. I said something rather than saying, excuse me, Rinpoche, could you explain that further? Um, but I should have. Anyway, finally, I, so I said my textbook answer, and he said, no, really, how much compassion practice do you do every day? So then I was obligated to say... Uh, what do you mean? And he said, well, how much do you go out in the street and just look around and see what's going on there and see the suffering? And just for an instant, I felt, you know, I, I thought, I wonder if I should be humiliated. I wonder if I look too self-centered or too preoccupied with my stuff or too fancy with my exotic practice. Maybe he's... Um, But he wasn't. He was just really kind. I didn't have a sense of any scorn, anything other than, seriously, that was his answer. How much do you go out and look at the suffering in the world?
you look out in the street and you don't just see what's going on, you really look, not only in the street, not only in the street where there's disagreeable things to look at in big cities, you can see a lot of people who look in dire circumstances. You'll see a lot of people who are homeless, a lot of people who look not well mentally. Even when you're looking in a circumstance where people look regular, like all of us. I sometimes do that when I'm sitting in a train. I remember taking the train from New York City up to uh, Hastings and riding along the Hudson, and it's beautiful, and looking around the train. And probably because my mind was relaxed and balanced, because that's actually when we begin to see past the outside of what it looks like. Looking around the train, see 30 or 40 people sitting in the train, riding along. And it suddenly occurred to me that given a population of 30 or 40 people, different sizes and shapes and ages and colors, and that probably one or two of them has, has either is currently dealing with a malignancy or has had one. Somebody has diabetes in that group. Somebody has just had bad news about something. Somebody perhaps has just had good news about something. Somebody uh, who's been trying a long time to get pregnant is going home now to tell their partner that the test is positive and they are. Somebody who's been trying a long time to be pregnant is going home to say that it's not working. Somebody is, everybody is having something. Everybody in that train is having something. Everybody's a person. Some more dire than others, but everybody's got something. I think if we look through the outer appearance, what we see is everyone is challenged, always. There's a, um, there's a, the English translation of the Pali word vipassana, seeing clearly. I, I used to think that was a great translation. I saw a French translation of seeing clearly not long ago, and I liked it better. It was vision profonde, really seeing profoundly, seeing through what you see. I thought to myself, seeing clearly can happen for me if I take off my glasses. And maybe that's a kind of seeing clearly. But vision profonde is just really to see past what's there, what's really there. Fundamentally, the Buddha was right. It is suffering. There's the suffering that's part, as Sally was talking about so eloquently last night, that's just part of being alive. In the best of all possible fortunate lives, we will lose everyone who is dear to us or they will lose us first. We will inevitably age if we're lucky enough to make it that long. And we'll, we'll decay in some way. We'll either get sick and die over a long period of time or we'll suddenly die. But inherent in life, I think sometimes I think about one long adjustment to continuing changing circumstances, which are always a loss. 
lost health, lost vigor, lost dreams, lost hopes, lost relationships. And we're heroic. We keep adjusting to it. And on top of that, to make it worse, all the things in the most fortunate of lives, we complicate life so much. On top of old age, sickness, and death, we have the poverty in the world that doesn't have to be there if we shared. We have the really wretched medical circumstances, health circumstances, that so many people in the world live in suffering from illnesses that there are remedies for because they're not available uniformly. We have terrible wars happening this very moment, different places on the planet. People so mad at each other, they're killing each other. It's an unthinkable thing to think life is already so difficult and we complicate it. Imagining in a childish mind state, that if we triumph, if we beat up the other person, it'll all be all right. And that the line in the Dhammapada that says, hatred never ends with hatred. Only by love alone. This is the eternal law. Hard, I guess, when we're frightened really frightened to death to remember that. But if we stop, we could remember. This would be a good time to read this poem. This is a poem by Pablo Neruda. It's about stopping. That's what we're doing here, you know. We're stopping. Stopping to look. When we go back in our lives in the world, without sitting all day long, going about our lives at a normal pace, with eyes open, in relationship, we can keep stopping inside. What's happening? What's happening? What's really happening? That's what mindfulness is. It is really awakening to every moment, looking at it really closely. What's really happening here? This is Pablo Neruda. Now we will count to twelve and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for a second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales. And the man gathering salt would not look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fires, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. I want no truck with death. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, Perhaps a huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us, as when everything seems dead, 
and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count to twelve, and you keep quiet, and I will go. The practice of mindfulness here and in our lives is the practice of stopping to see what's really happening here. What am I not seeing? How am I being single-minded, keeping my life moving? How can I see that I'm actually contributing to frightening each other to death? Stop. So I think what we are doing here is cultivating the technique, the, the technique of paying attention so that in our lives we'll pay attention. There's another part to it. We're cultivating a certain composure of heart, a certain steadiness of heart, certain equanimity, which I think is really the, the base that supports paying attention. I don't know that it would be possible to look at a world in this much pain and see it with a steady, open mind, a clear gaze, not be completely terrified by it, unless there was some base of equanimity, some level of steadiness that was filled with understanding it could not be other, given what's happened. It's not a mistake. It's awful, but it's not a mistake, given what's happened. It is a lawful cause and effect cosmos. What's happening is a result of everything else that happened. So that what I do now, what everyone does now, creates the whole of the future. The steadiness of that base, the equanimity, maybe we could think of it as calm, is what we cultivate here by stopping and living in this particular way. I think as you take into your lives some form of contemplative practice every day in which you stop the forward linear motion, rebuild that base of equanimity. There's a woman in India whose name is Vimala Thakkar. She's an extraordinary teacher in the tradition of uh, Gandhi. Tremendously potent force for helping small villages to organize and get together and work together as cooperative units and pool resources and farm together. Works tirelessly in the tradition of Gandhi to make change. And India is enormous. There are a billion people there. And huge, huge level of difficulty in life. She came to the United States seven years ago, maybe 20 years ago now, and was teaching in, um, coming as a guest to different retreat centers and teaching. I was sitting on a retreat in Santa Rosa in California, and she came for a day as a guest. And um, she led a sitting in the afternoon, and she was introduced as... uh, what she was, and whoever the teacher was told about her. And she sat up in front and led the sitting, and they had said in introducing her and telling about her, perhaps even before she got there, and um, maybe before she heard the introduction, they had said 
that she was very well known for her social activism, and that she was also recognized as being an extraordinary meditator and a meditation teacher. So she came and she led us sitting and she sat in front and afterwards people asked her questions. And one of the questions was, what does your meditation practice have to do with your social activism? And she said, it has everything to do with it. She said, the amount of suffering is extraordinary. The amount of pain to be seen in India is extraordinary. I can't imagine that I would be able to look at it if I did not have my practice. I think what we do for ourselves is we make ourselves steady enough to be able to look with both eyes and be vulnerable, to be able to burst into tears. I think that the uh, connection between this practice and um, a dedication to impeccability of behavior is when I, when I am overwhelmed by the pain in the world because of anger or lust, I am so determined not to contribute to it more with my own. With such um, as an impulse, I think I, I see it in myself every once in a while. Just feel a, an annoyed impulse. I'll just tell. There's a way to tell in a way that doesn't add to the anger of the world. There's a way to ask for what I need in a way that is straightforward. I really think. It's possible to behave impeccably. We talked, um, there was a meeting of the staff yesterday. We talked about words of um, Dharma words that inspired us. And people contributed all kinds of words that had meant something to them freedom and liberation. They were all very inspiring to me. One of the words was impeccability. The idea that one could uh, dedicate oneself to. Not that we wouldn't make mistakes, because we've, we're really all human. We startle and we make mistakes. People frighten us, we startle, we make mistakes. But a dedication to impeccability, a vowed life, I vow myself to these precepts, sets up um, guidelines so that when we accidentally, because we're frightened or we're tired or we're overwhelmed or we're just too done in, step over one of our guidelines, we notice it. It's like a tripwire. Say, whoa, look what I did. And it's really not to agonize about it, but to say, oh good, I'm glad I have that tripwire there. I didn't go too far from where I want to be. Now I fix myself up, good. Now I'm fixed up. Now I'm back where I want to be. I think it's a really happy thing to have a vowed life. I really like that very much. I think about it uh, um, because it's, uh, it's always been very attractive to me to watch other people doing robe ceremonies and see people taking vows. And 
thinking about um, for a person like myself, for whom at least at this point doesn't seem like a likelihood in this life to have an outer manifestation of robes, that a vowed life is an inner manifestation of vows. I like to think about that that way. So as we hear this week, stopping all the time in all the ways that we do, stopping and paying attention, stopping and paying attention, and being stopped by our own mind, getting caught in a suffer and then free. We learn over and over again about the possibility of the contentment of an open mind and open heart, that that really is the doorway to freedom and ease. And we become more vulnerable. Sometimes people ask on the last day of a retreat, they say, I'm so, I feel so open. I'm afraid I'll be too vulnerable. And I like to say to people, I don't think there's such a thing as too vulnerable. In fact, tomorrow when we talk, we'll tell you about how to take care of yourself so you don't feel overwhelmed by the world. And that's an important factor in going home, not to become overwhelmed. But too vulnerable, I think, is, or completely vulnerable is what I'd like to be. I don't mind it if I read the newspaper and I burst into tears. I'm waiting for the whole world to read the newspaper and burst into tears. Then I think we'll have a different world. I think about what is it going to take to break the heart of everyone in the world. There was a photograph a couple of weeks ago in the New York Times. I took it out. I've been carrying it around with me of... um, an old woman begging in the streets of Buenos Aires, talking about the fact that the the United Nations estimates that the world's elderly population, people 60 and over, will exceed the world's population of youth, 14 and under, for the first time in 2050. And it ends by saying the increases will almost certainly force the rethinking of social safety nets for the aged. For sure now, there isn't enough social safety nets all over the world. And you look at this picture of a woman in Buenos Aires sitting with a basket, an old woman, somebody's grandmother, somebody's mother, maybe somebody's great-grandmother. And you look at it and you cry. I think about images that changed the world when it cried enough. There was a newspaper image of... uh, children running down a road in Vietnam, a girl child, naked. That image, I think, changed the tide in this country and brought the war to an end. Enough people cried. The photos of the World Trade Center burning and falling down, etched into everybody's mind. Horrifying. But maybe if we all, 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 all the world looked around and said, something is terribly wrong. Let's go home and cry, all of us, and then start again. I have a a fantasy that if the whole world said, wait, stop, having a moratorium, everybody go home to their family and stay there for a month. Just make meals. Sit and eat. 
sit there and eat with your family. And if you don't have anything to eat, I'll bring you something to eat. Everybody will eat for a month. Everybody will take care of the people they love for a month. Everybody will look at each other. Everybody will sing songs. Everybody will tell stories of their ancestors. And after a month, let's see if we don't all have a good new idea about what to do, because certainly we're not doing it right now. Really what mindfulness practice is, it's a practice of seeing clearly enough so that we will have some new vision, some insight. Talk about insight practice. I think about intuition practice. People say a lot, you know, I see images, I write poetry, I have this idea for an essay I'm going to write. There's a whole part of the mind that is marvelously creative. When we are not caught up in our fears and our aversions and all the constraints of the habits of our suffering mind, we have no end of creative ability. James said something like that last night, that everything is available for us. We know it all. And we'll know it in new ways and amazing ways. We are amazingly creative. We do extraordinary things as human beings. Don't know what's going to be the image that's going to cause everybody to stop. everybody their own image. I was in Dharamsala five years ago, and uh, I passed a young woman with a child on the street, a beggar in the street. There are a lot in India. There are a lot here in this country. And it isn't as if I haven't seen young women homeless with babies on the street before or after. And I don't know why my mind was in a... Perhaps because we were in, we were in a, an, a... I was at a conference, and the conference was uh, Dharma teachers meeting, Western Dharma teachers meeting with the Dalai Lama. It was an extraordinarily exalted mood. My mind was really quite alert and focused. Maybe all of those things in India is so far from here, so you have to be on high alert all the time. It's complicated to live there. I was attentive. woman went by with a child, and I looked at her, and I could tell from just from the, the way her skin looked, I guessed, I'm not sure, of course, but I guessed that she had not had a hot bath in her life, that she was living in the street, perhaps always lived in the street. She was a young woman. I doubt that she was 20, and might not in her life. And for some reason, in that moment that I saw her, I just got that. Just that image, I see her now, just as if I saw her in that moment. And what changed for me since then is that not every single time that I get into a bathtub, but a lot, I get into a bathtub, I think about her. You know the feeling when you get into a hot tub up to here, and it's so pleasant, and it's clean water, you go to a hot springs, and you go to some beautiful spa, and you get in the water up to here. And I still take baths, and I still sometimes go to spas, and I get in the water. 
but I think about her when I get in the water. And she somehow remains for me my, my personal connection to being more careful about water, to being sure that I'm fairly scrupulous about recycling what can be recycled. It changed my connection to how I live in terms of preserving the earth. I'd heard a lot about taking care of the earth before, and I've heard a lot since. Some very learned and wonderful, tremendous discourses stirring. The woman in Dharamsala, who I think had never had a bath because I saw her in that moment, was my best teaching. It's heartbreaking to see the world. We're all struggling so hard. This practice, when people say, I've been doing this practice, or I'm doing this practice, this practice is the purification of the heart, purifying us of wrong views, of the confusions of seeing through filters, of the habits of the mind that don't do us any good. Certainly purifying, I hope, all my grudges, really, all the views. And James was talking the other night about comparing mind, this is better, I'm better than, I'm worse than. It is so tedious. It only makes other, I'm better than or I'm worse than, makes other. When he ended and he said there are no comparisons because there's nothing to compare. That's such a freedom. Freedom from views is freedom from separateness, is freedom from otherness, is letting everyone into your heart and realizing that we are all in the same boat. So here's the second and the last of the airplane stories. I got on an airplane going home from Boston, I think, to uh, San Francisco, cross-country. No, it must have been New York. had the New York Times in my lap, I remember it. Got on the plane, had the New York Times, took off. We took off, started flying. It's a couple of years ago now. Um, Some years after the question about how do you know when you're paying attention, I had the New York Times in my lap, and I had the, my knitting, which I always carry with me, or embroidery or something. And it was knitting that I had with me, and it was under the seat in front of me. We took off, went flying along, and I realized I was sitting there. And I'd been teaching quite a lot, several long courses and traveling a lot and teaching. And I realized we're flying, we're up, and I didn't have, no impulse arose to open the paper or to pick up the knitting. And I had the thought, see that? I'm maxed out. All the bytes, as in computer bytes, they're all used up. There's no more room. (laughs) And I I thought to myself right away, I realize it's a ridiculous thought. It's a part of my uh, uh, tendency of mine to make catastrophes out of nothing. (laughs) But anyway, we're flying along. I'm still sitting there. And uh, I look at the, the, I was sitting in three seats in the middle section, just in the bulkhead. And uh, next to me, there's a man with his computer uh, on his table in front of him, clicking away, in a kind of an urgent way. Oh, I remember, we're sitting next to the window, I remember now, because the woman next to him, or I found out later it was a woman you couldn't tell to begin with, she was all wrapped in a blanket was wrapped in a blanket and leaning against the, the window. And um, 
I guess, to sleep. So I looked at them, and uh, I like cartoons a lot. I, I, uh, I read cartoons, I save cartoon books, I like them, and I imagine cartoons. So I imagine these two people as cartoons. I imagine them as uh, James Thurber cartoons. I drew a little box around them in my mind, and I was labeling them according to the hindrances. You remember the five hindrances? So I uh, labeled the man next to me as a restless man with mind full of anxious energy. And then I looked past him at this wrapped up in a blanket, and uh, I label it as a torpor man or woman um, with mind empty of energy. I'm pretty pleased with myself. And <laughs> the flight attendants give out the dinners then. So I unwrap my dinner and he unwraps his dinner. Woman in the blanket unwraps herself and then she <laughs> unwraps the dinner. And we're all eating away. Nobody talks to anybody. Everybody's looking straight ahead. Everybody's <laughs> eating. And uh, I look across the aisle and I see there's a young man. looks in his 20s. And he's eating his dinner, and he's watching the video in front of him, in the, in the seat back in front of him. He's watching the video. But I see that he is plugged, he's got a different earphone, and then I see that he's plugged into a cassette player. So he's watching the video, <laughs> and he's plugged into a cassette player, and he's eating, and he's got a, a paperback book that he's holding up here at a level next to the movie. And he's reading the paperback and he's watching the movie at the same time. So I draw a box around him. <laughs> and I write a caption, a lustful man with mind on the verge of exploding. <laughs> and just like you just did, I burst out laughing. <laughs> Big laugh, just like that. I, and right away I realized, what can the man next to me be thinking? <laughs> All of a sudden, in response to apparently nothing, I have burst out laughing. Then I have really an age-conscious thought, probably thinks I'm old, so I'm eccentric. <laughs> do odd things, so I sit up a little taller not to look so old. And I got a little bit startled by my own, I kind of woke myself up. I looked back at the man across the aisle and I realized in that moment that he was doing what he was doing because he was frightened. He was doing everything that he could to keep himself comfortable. And in that same moment I realized also that I was frightened. The truth is I'd been frightened the moment before that uh, I'd embarrassed myself in front of this man and that he thinks I'm old and eccentric. That was a little fear. And then I'd had a little fear before that about I'm maxed out and I don't have enough mind power and I have no bites left and uh, uh, this is a sign of declining vigor, sure to decline more with time. And the truth is I'm also, uh, I was aware, I'm also not crazy about flying. It's not a problem. But I don't like it, really. I realized we're all frightened. 
And in that moment, I could feel a change in myself. And I looked over at this poor young man doing all his things, and looked over at my people. <laughs> and I actually did what you do when you get frightened and you realize other people are frightened. You wish well for them. You do metta. You do compassion practice. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be peaceful. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. The great relief. When I'm not paying attention, I'm not kind. And that's true for all of us. If I feel not kind, I have to look closer. The sign. The sign that I haven't looked closely enough. We're all in trouble. Life is hard. Everybody's managing the best they can. We are noble. We're heroic. We get up in the morning. We do it again and again and again. And it's hard, life. No matter how hard it gets, for most of us, not for everybody, we continue to want more. And we continue to get up and try once again to make it come out right. We are heroic against all odds. Like the van driver in Santa Barbara said, if you look around, it breaks your heart. And then you're connected. I thought that um, we might end as we did the the metta practice this afternoon for all beings. Of course, we included all beings on all realms, but really we we thought about and visualized all human beings, talked about their connection to us that we can intuit because we all of us have hearts that respond in empathic bond with the people we care about. I thought I might end by reminding you that I think that uh, sati, the Pali word for mindfulness, um, got translated as mindful because I think the original texts in the English language were British texts. And that uh, mindful is a particularly British word. It means um, heedful. When you get off the, 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 the subway in uh, London, it says mind at the step means be careful, means pay attention. I've noticed that people have stopped saying uh, uh, goodbye or uh, even have a good day. They said that for a while. People are saying take care now. Did you notice that? It's a new salutation for leaving. Take care. I think it's not a bad salutation, take care. Suppose we said that to everybody and they actually took care. That would be great. Just before I came in here tonight, I stopped in the staff room and um, I was uh, singing to myself under my breath when I came in. And uh, the five women who were in there said, uh, are you getting ready for the, here she is singing, were you getting ready for the talk? And I said, I am, I sing to myself beforehand. Um, Something that makes me happy, puts me in a good place. And uh, we uh, sang with each other. one of the many versions of the 
four permutations of um, wisdom and goodwill that are the Brahma Viharas. Brahma Viharas are um, the natural way in which the mind, when it isn't frightened, what human beings are capable of, the capacity of the human heart, upayaka, which is the balanced, wise heart, mudita, which is a heart with so much balance that it's absolutely unstinting in its um, delight at other people's good fortune. Delight untinged by any hint of personal need. Can you imagine that? That's so lovely. Karuna is compassion. And it's uh, the balanced mind responding with real empathetic care to suffering one's own and other people's, but from a place of balance and wisdom. Couldn't be other. And metta, which is really the... uh, natural context of the heart. It's friendly. We don't need friendliness lessons. We are friendly because we're human beings. We're relational and we connect. That's really the instruction for this practice. We wouldn't do it in two words. We would say only connect. So we sang together um, those four words, metta, karuna, mudita, upeka. And then someone, so we sang it for a while, and someone said, oh, I bet this would work in a round. And it did. And probably if you uh, were walking by the staff room on your way in here, I see people saying yes, you heard it coming out of there. And I said, what do you think if we do it in there together as a group tonight? And she said, yes. So <clears throat> I said, uh, Well, you'll all have to do it with me because I'm not very good at carrying a tune. And everybody said, well, we'll help you, and James is right next to you, and he's very good at carrying a tune. You know which one I'm thinking about. So we'll do it, all of us together, and then we'll, after we have it, which isn't so hard, we'll do it in a round. You're going to help me now. (coughs) Here we go. Meta karuna mudita upeka meta karuna mudita upeka meta karuna mudita upeka meta Meta karuna mudita upeka. Meta karuna mudita upeka. Okay, now what we're going to do is these folks, James on, are going to sing, are going to start. And then, when they have sung four words, these folks can sally on. Forward, meta, karuna, mudita, upeka. No, no, no. These kids, believe me. <laughs> 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 it will work, won't it? It will work. Okay. 
So we'll start, and then you will come in from the beginning. And it'll be a great round. It'll, it'll, it'll work. It'll work. It'll work. And here's the instruction. Once technically it's going, we'll do it for a little while. And then I suggest you close your eyes and imagine everyone that you love, everyone that you've been thinking about in your metta, everyone that you'll meet again tomorrow. And then, if you want, rice farmers in China and newborns in Uganda and um, women in Dharamsala and uh, fishermen. Portugal, and any place else in the world, and Dharma fairs all over the world who are doing this with you right now. Meta Karuna Mudita Upeka Meta Karuna Mudita
This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Insight Meditation Society on May 10, 2002. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.